you found the purpose. You you see yourself and why a lot of folks do become teachers is to have that relationship, that interaction with education and learning. Is to want to see those those light bulbs go off in students' heads. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, I'm super excited about our conversation today. And joining us is Dr. Alvin Logan Jr. of the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture from Seattle, Washington. So, Dr. Logan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Annalise. I, uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk about the Burke and the amazing things that we're doing, especially during one of our most challenging years, not only in the industry, but at the university and at the Burke itself. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think that's a, a challenge worldwide, right? Yes. Absolutely. So just for a little bit of context for our listeners, Dr. Logan is the Director of Education and Affiliate Curator of African Culture and Education uh, with the Burke Museum. And adding to that, just a, a little bit of opportunity to sort of highlight, uh, Dr. Logan has a track record of building support systems to catalyze learning for marginalized communities, from middle school to graduate school, and that is not an easy spread to uh, to take on. And Dr. Logan's focus on culturally relevant pedagogical approaches, decolonization, and multicultural curriculum development is the thing that I am most intrigued by. So again, welcome to the program. Um, I want to just dive right in. First and foremost, because our listeners come from all over the world, just for folks who don't know anything about the Burt Museum, let's start by sort of setting the stage. What is this institution? And then we'll get to how you found yourself there and what you do. Yeah, good, good question. The Burt Museum is the state of Washington's natural history and culture museum. And it's been around for over 130 years now. Definitely had you know deep roots in the community, started with the wife of Thomas Burke, who was a collector of, of Native art back in the day. And, um, you know, the many stories that go with that, the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. And it's now birthed into a large cornerstone for research, for teaching, and for just community building. Um, I would say especially for Indigenous populations of the of the Northwest, Indigenous populations of North America, but mm-hmm. also Indigenous populations northwide or worldwide, excuse me. So it's been a very a hub of, of some sorts in the Northwest for learning, for teaching, and for understanding natural culture and history. We just opened a brand new, beautiful museum, which has a very inside-out look to it. Mm-hmm. And you can tell from the architecture, some of the pictures that we have online, they don't do it justice. Um, I implore you all to come on in if, if you have the chance to, especially if you're visiting the Northwest. Um, but it's the design is very grandiose, right? right. Stairs down the middle of the, of the of the building, you can see all the way up to the third floor, all the way down. And the very large windows allow you to see back into collections, allow you to see back into where curators are doing work. Our education team especially has a office right on the mezzanine, so you pass us on the way to do almost mm-hmm. anything within the museum. Um, so that's, like I said, I was saying the inside out look really does the museum and the work that we all do a lot of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's mm-hmm. again, brand new building opened up and 
2019, then again closed in 2020 because yeah. of COVID and reopened again and closed again and reopened again. So <laughs> the the up and downs that go with that. But um, we are the Burke. We are still standing strong. Um, one Burke is, as we like to say, mm-hmm. and that's just a, a little bit about us. Yeah. And it, it is a it is a, a absolutely amazing place now. And I have unfortunately not been able to see the new vision, if you will, uh, of the Burke. But I have been to the Burke numerous times in my career and my own travels of my own work in anthropology and archaeology um, in the Pacific Northwest. And so I would echo what you heard from Dr. Logan. If you get the chance, go see it because it is actually a really special place. And so with that, then let's talk a little bit about how how you found yourself there and what what is your work? What what is your passion about being at the Burke? Oh, great questions. Great questions. I had a very circuitous path to get to the Burke. Mm-hmm. And I say that because one of the curators I've had an extensive relationship with for about eight or nine years now, um, Dr. Holly Barker, who was a curator for um, Pacific Islands Asiatic Culture. Mm-hmm. And my first instance of interaction with her was in graduate school. And I got a chance to see how she conducts work through the Burke and also teaching and get a chance to TA some of her classes within anthropology. And we started to build a relationship that came upon the understanding of how to get students to explore what being critical was, being radical, being decolonial or focusing on decoloniality. And it opened my eyes to a brand new world of how you can influence young minds. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at that point, I was I was completing my master's, then went away to University of Texas at Austin, where I earned my PhD in education, cultural studies and education at that. And I knew immediately I wanted to return to Seattle and I wanted to work at the university. Um, I came back, I started teaching just, you know, part-time one-offs. Mm-hmm. And I remember Dr. Barker emailed me one day and said, hey, we have a position open at the Burke. I would love it if you'd reply. Mm, wow. I remember at that moment, I got very excited just because one, Holly is, is a great mentor. So when she brings something to me, it's exciting. Usually everything that, that's come to me, we've been able to do something with something positive and something that had a big impact on our community. So I was just elated when she, she told me about the opportunity. I remember right then and there preparing my materials, getting ready to do it and feeling anxious about the position because I was like, I don't know, are they going to choose me? Like this is, <laughs> this is my first time I've ever worked in a museum setting. Mm-hmm. And I've been an educator uh, for about seven years, going on eight now. Mm-hmm. Been teaching teachers, then um, the pre-service teacher pipeline, also seasoned teacher. So my my background is in education. My background is in um, sports as well. So it's really a kind of shift to work in this kind of role. But understanding where I come from, understanding my connection within the education community, it made sense um, for me to apply for this role. Mm-hmm. And just Again, knowing that I have the ability to touch between 70 and 90,000 kids ideologically a year, mm-hmm. that is a beautiful thing. And I don't know too many folks that are educators at heart that would not jump at an opportunity like this. Absolutely. And there's something really special, powerful, magical, take your pick of the words, you know, about informal education and the power that can happen in museum and other informal settings. And, you know, on this program, we talk about informal frequently. And the reason we we, we, we dig into it, I always come back to it on this program. And the reason we come back to it is because I would argue that the world of formal education, formal K-12, can learn so much from our informal partners about inspiring 
inspiring and engaging and helping kids, family, community take your pick, find their passion that could one day be a career, very much like what you just expressed. Because you know, I you're you're, you're not necessarily watching yourself in the mirror as as you were sort of sharing that backstory with me, but it was really really clear that the excitement that you feel every day about being part of this environment and being part of the Berg, it's just clear, you know, that you you're, you were like, this is the place. I was destined to be. And there's something to be said for that and helping kids find their way there. So let's just dig right into the helping kids find their way. So talk to us a little bit about first and foremost, because teachers um, and community members um, listen to this program, like I said, from all over the world. And we get an awful lot of questions about, oh my gosh, I just heard this thing on Learning in Box. It was awesome. You know, Dr. Logan's sharing all these amazing things, but how can I emulate aspects of what he's talking about in my own community with my own resources or even tap into theirs. And so I think a lot of that is tied to folks' natural inclination of how do they grab a hold of the pedagogical philosophy that you're employing every day at the Burke and build that into their own teaching. I would say at the basis of it, it's inclusivity. Mm -hmm. And inclusivity based on the populations that are around you and the populations that are a part of the community that the Burke serves, right? So not right. just the Pacific Northwest, not just the state of Washington, not just Seattle and larger places like that, but across the world. Mm-hmm. The different, the amount of collections that we have from across the world are our chance to engage with different ways of knowing and being. Right. And when I said inclusivity, it underlines every piece of what we do. And we take it from a position of inspiring joy in learning, especially with children. And when we in, when we infuse joy and inclusivity, it it brings about a certain level of self-efficacy and empowerment within students that it's almost not seen in a lot of different places mm-hmm. where learning takes place. Mm-hmm. And that's again because we're connecting heritage, we're connecting culture, and we're connecting ideas that have not been fathomed before. Right. And as any good educator knows, when you see the light bulb go off in a child's head. It's one of the best visceral reactions that you can get. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. that is something that that happens multiple times during whatever interactions that our educators have with students, with teachers, mm-hmm. um, with just community members that are going to come in. Because, again, we are a institution with a vast amount of knowledge. And that knowledge, again, if we're, we're holding inclusivity, and I would also say decoloniality within mm-hmm. it, we're talking about ways to center indigenous knowledge. Right and indigeneity and that understanding of how our world has has come to understand STEM, has come to understand culture from a very Western perspective. Mm -hmm, Exactly. From a very Eurocentric perspective. So being able to say that there's knowledge in other places, Mm -hmm. to say that the Tulalip tribe has traditional ecological knowledge that can tell you how to take care of the land and be one and a part of the land in understanding STEM, Mm It's something radical to a lot of folks, but it's something very home, I would say, for a lot of folks as well. And very, very loved and very passed down and very sacred, right? right. This, is, this is the knowledge that we all want for our kids. We all want our kids to understand our heritage. We all want our kids to understand culture. We all want our kids to understand how to push forward with their gifts in the world. And we're giving that chance to the Burke for kids that normally don't see their culture, normally don't see or are able to develop STEM identities within formal education because they have an adverse um, relationship with, you know, STEM learning, right. maybe because of the environment, whatever it may be. But again, in inspiring joy 
And really the fun parts of learning, I like to say, mm-hmm. through, you know, informal institutions like the Burke, yeah. we just get, we, we get all of the fun stuff. We get all the laughs, we get all the joy, we get all the, oh, wow. Yeah. We have none of the testing. Right. And, and that is yay. where true learning takes place. It is. Absolutely. And I, and I love that. And I love, I love the passion of it. And, you know, it, it passed, you know, our, you know, vision or mission statement, I guess, if you will, link learning to life, right? We believe that. Absolutely. And, and what I love about what you're just talking about is that you have really, you, the Burke, um, but your, your own work within the Burke, you know, it, really leads with that community component, right? The, the inclusivity of saying, hey, you know, we, we are not just this local community, like you said, you know, uh, a Washington community. We, we are so much more than that. Um, and, and, and again, there's so much power in that. So for some of our listeners who may be struggling with some of the words, I, I do, and I'm so thrilled to have you on the show because I very much want to be able to sort of dig into the weeds a little bit about this notion of de colonization, uh, decolonialism, right? And it's it's popping up all over uh, the world in a variety of different ways. But the last year or so, schools are getting more comfortable with having this conversation. So let's talk about that just a little bit from the perspective of your work in particular. Help, yeah. help, help our fellow teachers understand what, they're, what they should be, or better yet, what they could be doing with this moment to help their kids. All right. So Without, I, I, I would be remiss to talk about decolonization without talking about colonization, right? right? It's kind of talking about like race without having to talk about racism, right? Colonization is a system that was built to foreground a, a certain perspective, a certain set of behaviors, a certain set of cultural understandings, um, which we know to be Eurocentric or mm-hmm. white supremacist in some, some instances, right? And our focus on decoloniality is in tandem with the focus of inclusivity. Mm-hmm. And decoloniality, what it does is it, forcefully jars apart that centralized understanding of one culture's history, one culture's behavior, one culture's understanding of the world, ontology and epistemology, I would also say, to be more inclusive of other understandings, right. of, of the understandings that, that bring the beauty of diversity across our world to the forefront. And in that focus, we've been able to connect with communities and build relationships that we have an understanding of your knowledge is going to be protected your, your processes, your understanding, your heritage is not going to be benefited from in, in light of wanting to center, again, the pieces of understanding that have been centered for, for centuries, mm-hmm. right? Now we're looking at bringing different ways of knowing to the forefront to influence young minds to understand that it's not just about one set of norms, one set of behaviors, one set of culture, um, but it's about a vast amount of culture that that builds into who we are as humans, right. who we are as, as, as educators, who we are as students, who we are as people in general, right? And that is the beauty of decoloniality because the process in itself is rooted in love. Right. The process itself is rooted in figuring out a way to have everybody feel empowered mm-hmm. as to who they are, where their knowledge comes from, and their history and heritage, as opposed to really foregrounding a standard or a norm to which everybody else from that standard or norm would be deviant, right? right? There are a number of different ways and arms that go into it. We talk a lot of, a lot of times about settler colonialism, which is um, what a, a number of indigenous American groups have been, the, that settler colonial rule they've been under, right? right? We talk about internal colonialism. Specifically with my work, I work against what's called epistemocide. And that's basically the murder of knowledge systems, right? And the, the centering of a single knowledge system to where everything else, again, becomes deviant. 
Right. So to right. really decenter what is happening there is, again, a truly beautiful process that is rooted in love because it brings in different knowledge systems. It forces us to build relationships that are ones that are rectificatory, ones that are reciprocal, and not ones that are really transactional, which has been done in the industry for years. Mm-hmm. Again, it was about what knowledge can we take from you to package and put out? Right. Now we're worried about building platforms for communities through the, the privilege and the platforms that we have at the Burke to be able to share knowledge, to share history, again, to empower students, right. to empower communities to feel like themselves. And that right. is okay. And that is a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it's, it's an exciting thing as well, right? Because there's so much opportunity in, in, in that very process and in the understandings that will come from that. So let's dig into that just a little bit and, and, and talk about the specifics about sort of the, the virtual object-based learning that's happening at the Burke. And I want to talk about how and what the pivot looked like for you during, you know, this this global, and we're going to call it a global endeavor, right? It, it, it's been awful in many ways. And yet I've said repeatedly on the program over the last couple of months, we, it has also handed us collectively an opportunity or a lot of opportunities, actually, if we really want to dig into them and say, hey, you know, we, we, we get this, this, this moment maybe to have a sort of a, a restart or a reset, maybe it's even a better way to think about it and take your pick about the topic. But um, there are very few conversations that we've had where you can't find an opportunity to say, let's do things very, very differently rather than going back to what was let's imagine something completely different. And so share with us just a little bit about what that work has looked like at the Burke during during the pandemic and how do you keep going and delivering all of these, these great essential needs and content back into the community? Great question. Um, and I think great, great framing of the year that we've been through and mm-hmm. just the challenges that everybody's faced. As, as I explained, as I, I would be remiss if I did not give credence and, and really a lot of kudos to my team. Mm-hmm. Um, I work with amazing educators. I work with amazing, intelligent individuals, not only in their sector of knowledge within museums, but just great people. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to build things without great people that are intelligent, that are passionate about what they do. And I've been blessed with a great team when I came in. Um, I was My first day was actually the day before the Burke closed the doors. Really? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. I uh, had no idea. How tough that was, was that? It was, it's been very difficult. Um, and I would say that because the entire time I've been working at the Burke, it's been remote, building relationships mm-hmm. and such. But as again, I, I would double down on, I have a great team. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I'm able to work with such a great team made this experience, especially during such a tumultuous time, that much easier. And it sounds a bit weird to say it made it easier, but mm-hmm. that, that was really the fact. Like, they, my team has been running very put together very organized, very top of the line programs when we were open for for years. Mm -hmm. And the pivot became a chance of adversity to where it not only tested the team, but it tested the entire museum. And when my team was put to the test in terms of what to do, where to pivot, it was immediate. Brainstorm. Mm -hmm. We were figuring out ways. We tried to research what other institutions are doing and then quickly realized we had to just make a choice. We have to do what we have to do. Right. And we decided to create virtual learning, virtual learning opportunities. We began with free curriculum packets that we would put out for students, especially during the first couple of weeks where mm-hmm. you know, students didn't know what to do. They were at home, right. yeah. piece to do. So we put out curriculum packets for ad for teachers or um, proxy teachers, as you would say, parents. Parents. <laughs> um, that were definitely at home. So we tried to support them because we knew this time was difficult. 
And, you know, we have the resources to be able to do it. So I said, let's put out free curriculum packets. But as, as we were doing that, we were working and building. And I would say it took a couple months to be able to put together our virtual field trips, our virtual mm-hmm. live sessions, and then to revamp our boxes and to make sure that everybody knew that they were safe to be able to use. Um, now, bird boxes we have used in the past, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But as the the understanding about COVID and how um, the bacteria and mm-hmm. virus itself was going to live on objects, um, as that continued to evolve, we understood that if we brought it, you know, we brought a box back to the Burke and we we froze it for a number of days. We had UV lights. We did everything to be able to kill mm-hmm. um, the virus on surfaces so that we can continue to send it out. And that has been one of our biggest hits. Mm-hmm. The boxes um, themselves, yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Burke boxes have been one of our biggest hits. Um, because, you know, you have learning school pods or, you know, homeschool pods or just parents, again, that have maybe three, four kids or they have the neighbor's kids that will come over. Right. Uh, they, they want that object based learning mm-hmm. that they weren't able to get over, you know, our, our 2D world, our right. 2D learning classrooms, if you will. So it made it a, a, a step that was doable because our live sessions are built mm-hmm. off of what we already do in person. Right. So right. we had a, We had a stock foundation of this is the knowledge to which mm-hmm. we want to impart on kids. Yeah. This is the experience which we want them to have, and then we were able to interface that with Flovella, which is a a, a wonderful tool to be able to bring a PowerPoint kind of setting, but it's more embedded where you have a choice to you know kind of like when you're reading mm-hmm. novels back in the day, mm-hmm. those pumps novels where you had yeah, a choice. Absolutely, to a choice. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a tool that gave that tour like feel through your own portal and your own. Um, interest um, based on where you wanted to go. So it, it made engagement over this 2D world a little bit more interactive. Mm-hmm. It gave students a little bit more agency versus just you know being able to sit there and listen. I, mean, I would say the same thing for our live programs. Mm-hmm. Now, our educators, you know, Catherine, Pamela, Andrea, and Mary Jane do a wonderful job of being able to engage with children over this 2D space, like to mm-hmm. really see where they have the 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 most joy and the most interaction to capitalize on that. And we do it in, in our, our classrooms at the bottom of the Burke in the West classroom, if you will. And it's object-based. So we, we look at mm-hmm. different specimens, whether it be birds or whether it be, um, you know, dinosaurs or no matter what, what the pieces, we take those objects and we work with them. We tell them about the different pieces. We tell them about rock sediment. We tell them about a number of different, I would say a number of different areas within STEM and within science and culture that, again, that they would get when they came in. And mm-hmm. the fact that our educators also are still able to have that level of engagement in this 2D world, again, has been an amazing feat. And it's been one of the reasons why folks like to, like to plug into our live program. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we're able to still give that energy and that learning and that passion through this 2D space. Um, so those have been you know, three of our, our major offerings during this time. We've also been able to create what we call our fossil finder packs which is basically a, a microfossil sorting pack that gives information about dinosaurs, has gives kids a, a chance to really feel like they're a paleontologist. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I can personally vouch for the joy that happens with kids with that, as my son was, the first one that he did was a couple months ago, and he's asked for one every week since. Oh, that's because awesome. Because he likes the process of just digging them out and understanding what he finds. Like, Daddy, look what I found, look what I yeah. found. and. Just knowing that of the four programs that I've just talked about and the joy that comes from it, mm-hmm. and really the engagement and the engagement level that happened during such a arduous year is, mm-hmm. it's just amazing. It, it's yeah. amazing to pivot. And again, kudos to my team and kudos to the Burke as a whole for really 
fostering us and, and allowing us to move into this space to continue to help kids learn. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's a remarkable um, feat that the, the team has been successful at that because that's not the case. We we have on this program talked to a number of museums throughout this, and I can say that it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, some some institutions and some of their staffs, you know, everybody trying really, really hard, right? Some with more success than others. And I think that part of the those that are seeing success versus those that are, are that are not, if I were to distill it down based on all the different pieces that I've been hearing and and my my sort of listening tour, if you will, um, has really been the places that were really in tune with and plugged into their communities. Yes. In a very powerful and meaningful way prior to the pandemic, families immediately look to them and not with suspicion and not with reticence and not with, you know, a whole host of other things, right? But familiarity, you know, makes you comfortable as we we know, right? And so that that would be one of those things that clearly the community had fully embraced the Burke prior to for, you know, to, to lend itself into some of the success that you have. So mm-hmm. I want to pivot and go a little bit off script um, and ask you a question you may or may not know the answer to yet as everybody in the world is opening up. There's a tremendous amount of conversation certainly in the U.S., but but around the world as well, about the, the year that we've lost, and especially for kids and for schools and for learning. And yet, like we talked about earlier, there was, we, we've learned a lot in this space. It's not just necessarily the standardized stuff that shows up on tests, but we've, we've collectively learned an awful lot. But what, if any, specific role is the Burke sort of planning as it relates largely, I guess, to the summer, but even into the coming year? Or is that an internal conversation that's happening about what could your role be if, if, and I'm using the, the if in all caps here, if if the, the need or the decision is made locally with the Burke that filling a gap is the right thing to do, or maybe the conversation is, no, we're going to pivot and do something else. And and out of fairness to you, do you have you guys even decided these things yet? So I apologize if it's premature, but it's one of those things that's churning everywhere I talk to folks. Okay, what are we going to do about the summer? So what are we going to do about the summer, Dr. Logan? <laughs> great questions. Great questions. And um, again, kudos to my team. Like we mm-hmm. we have been thinking about this for a while. We're, we're wondering how we're really waiting for our chance to plug in as an educational institution, right? Mm-hmm. As a mm-hmm. place where we want people to come and to find that love for learning that maybe they wouldn't have had during school, especially during um, such years like we've had. But also we wanted to find that that, that place of, you know, you, you can come here and you can explore. You can mm-hmm. say, I don't, I don't know much about this. Let me try this. I can, you know, I can go do anything from archaeology to paleontology to uh, mammalogy to like, I, I, I want to just go explore and see what I want to do. And that curiosity is why we want folks to plug in and why we want to be considered one of those institutions that can support all types of learning that come within natural history and culture. And this is this has been something that we've been working on and, and, and brewing for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this summer, we do have camps coming up. So they're individual learning camps, um, obviously, with smaller numbers, being able to engage with um, our educators just you know, about the different offerings that we have um, during the year. It's it's another chance for, again, parents to kind of trust us in the, the knowledge of their kids during the summer when, you know, schools aren't in. We also have a relationship with the library systems. Mm-hmm. So for students that are going to the libraries during the summer, they're, they're doing their reading challenges and they want an additional layer of learning. We plugged in with the library systems. We have a number of different relationships also with some other 
I don't want to say childcare, but community centers, I would say mm-hmm. like boys and girls clubs mm-hmm. and even cultural community centers. Um, we're building relationships with a number of different of those to, to be one of the places that they can turn to when events like these happen or when events like the past year happen. And to say that we're still there, we're, we're still supporting you. And we want to make sure that you have a platform again to, to center community knowledge, right? And this is something that's very important to a lot of communities because it's not something that's done out of museums a lot of times. Yeah. And for us to be that and to still quest to find a way that we can plug into education or any way that we can plug into education because we feel that we have a, a beautiful model um, one of healing, one of love, one of decoloniality, as I was mentioned before. But that model is is very supportive of positive academic, educational, and personal growth of students, of children. So we've been looking for every instance we can to plug in. We've been trying mm-hmm. to tell people these are services we have. We've been creating the relationships. We've been trying to do everything we can to support community, to support learning. Like I said before, we put out free curriculum packets. We've done a number of different, or actually we, we did in February, a our, our first time ever, it was called Community Storytime with Mr. D and School Storytime with Mr. D, two different programs, mm-hmm. um, to where we engaged with our African collections. First time we've ever done it in over mm-hmm. six years. Really? And we had a chance to do that for the first time in, in during Black History Month, which mm-hmm. is a very important month, obviously. And it makes for another relationship to build through the community. There was a lot of groundwork laid into it. There was a lot of relationship laid, especially within the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And that to come to fruition is just one of the ways in which, again, we're trying to plug into different places to be a, a responsible platform for learning. Yeah. Um, so we, we just continue to look for every single way that we can plug in, every single way that we can support. Um, we do have plans of which to... Um, be more part of the, the pre-service teacher learning pipeline mm-hmm. to see informal institutions as place of learning, yeah. places where you can bring students, places where you can lean on in terms of curriculum. So since mm-hmm. time of memorial curriculum, STI as we call it up here, yep. it's learning about the different indigenous populations and their experience with traditional ecological knowledge, their cultural traditions, mm-hmm. heritage since time of memorial. And this, mm-hmm. this is a beautiful piece of curriculum that, again, students don't get nationwide. Right, right. But they we don't. have a mm-hmm. distinct focus on it. Mm-hmm. Which is fabulous because it's really, really tough. There, there are places, certainly places within the U.S. where there's almost zero knowledge of Native cultures, and it's not taught. It doesn't show up in the standards. It's not even an afterthought, which is, to your point, absolutely, for starters, not appropriate by any stretch of the imagination. But it's also very unfortunate because there's so much opportunity um, that is is lost in that. Um, I. I I wonder, as you, I was thrilled that you were talking about pre-service teachers. And, you know, one of the things that I have always found, to be perfectly blunt, really, really remiss, I think it's an opportunity that we have collectively lost. You know, when we talk about pre-service teachers and that sort of, depending on where where you're a pre-service teacher, whether it's a semester, which is unfortunate, a full year or more, you know, that sort of student teacher, early teaching experience, and yet we plug people into traditional schools. And I would argue we've missed this great opportunity. Let's plug these folks in first to an informal setting, right? Or at minimum to let make sure that part of their pre-service teaching journey includes learning how to teach like the informals. Yes. What is is there any chance or possibility that some of those components are being rolled into the work that you're doing? I want to dig in just a moment into some of the pre-service, the way you the the institutions thinking about the pre-service work that you're doing. Yeah. Well, the reason we, we want to do that again is to give pre-service teachers a home. Um, right. They feel that 
learning is going to take place outside of a pressured system that happens with, you know, standardized testing with Mm -hmm. the different environments about um, school funding and how it's, you know, those those sort of pieces. We want to make sure that they have a place to where they feel a solace. Right. So where learning and education is the forefront. And that's the, the, the baseline interaction relationship that they want. We want them to have with the Burke as an informal institution or informal education institution, because again, if you have a positive relationship with learning and, and teaching, and which we think we're, we're, we're building and we foster and we continue to expand and develop, if you lead with that, if you start with that, everything else seems like I can do this. Because you found the purpose, you you see yourself and why a lot of folks do become teachers is to have that relationship, that interaction with education and learning mm-hmm. is to want to see those those light bulbs go off in students heads is to want to see them plug in and love and to, to be critical about pieces of our world, to understand mm-hmm. more about the heritage, history and culture. And to be able to do that is to create a relationship early on in that development process of that teacher. Mm-hmm. And this is something as. Um, I was teaching at the University of Texas. I, I taught a course called uh, Sociocultural Influences on Learning. Mm-hmm. And we delved deeply into race, gender, class, coloniality, a number of different forces within education, not just schooling, but within education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be remedied through certain informal institutions. That can be remedied through community centers. That can be remedied through um, elders within a community, understanding knowledge transmission and how that learning process needs to be replicated within schools. Yeah. Because again, that is a positive mm-hmm. process to learning. A lot of students, especially from marginalized communities, have an adverse relationship to learning because of the process of it, yeah, because absolutely. of the pedagogy, because of the curriculum, yeah. because of the high pressure bits mm-hmm. of testing. And we eliminate all of that. Yeah. yeah. And really get to the basis of what it is. So to have teachers really engage with us in, in that type of role and understanding that education is, is, is not just about being in a school is an amazing feat. And it opens up, I would say, teachers' minds to the roles they can take to continue to educate in the community. And it doesn't always have to be in a school, right? But um, so plugging in there is, is twofold, right? We want teachers to see us as a, a space of learning, space of positive learning. But we also want folks to know that in your journey, you can learn how to teach, not just within a school, but how to educate mm-hmm. through the part. Which is which is a much more fulfilling endeavor, right? Absolutely. You know, we we do a lot of professional development, like many organizations and entities do, of course, with with teachers in schools, and we have um, these sticky note postcard things, you know, that we we hand out to to every teacher gets this, and and it says teacher passion. Yes. Right. You know, and and so I I love this piece of the conversation because we I think sometimes we forget that teaching and learning. They're, they're not just symbiotic, right? That one desperately needs the other to show them the way. And, and if we let go of some of what we think we know and then we embrace the things we're passionate and curious about, we can help each other sort of find, find a slightly different journey. So I, I appreciate that so very much. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, go for it. It's important, you know, it's it's absolutely important. We can't help kids, you know, tap into their own curiosity and passions if we can't identify and own our own, right? And so that's part of it. You know, teachers that I have found that have been reticent to stray from a standardized curriculum or, um, you know, or, or, or a, a sort of planning guide, if you would, you know, I say that with, with chagrin. You know, the thing that I find more than anything else is, you know, that it's because they're afraid. It's yeah. because back to one of the things you were saying earlier, the institution that they learned in, 
right, was very structured and not conducive to being inclusive or to recognize the unique qualities of the individuals within that system. And so oftentimes, that's exactly what I find. It's not that folks don't want to, it's they have no idea how to step outside of what they've been exposed to to imagine something else. Absolutely. And that's that's the beauty of, again, the Burke as an institution, the yeah. Burke informal um, education institution, that is we provide that opportunity. Yeah. We provide a chance to engage with learning that takes place above and beyond. That is, wasn't necessarily envisioned because, again, as, as you're being trained as a teacher, you're learning how to do things either mm-hmm. through the apprenticeship observation or you're learning how to do things based off of theory. Right. Right. You have practice, you have practicum, you have, you know, you get in the classrooms actually into our teachers. But really being out there by yourself and Mm -hmm. really being able to learn not just the theory, but to put it in practice with young minds in a space that's again not pressured. Right. It's it's one that allows for creativity. Mm -hmm. It's one that allows for um, opening up your understanding and really quelling your fears and your inhibitions when it comes to doing something different. Yeah. Right. Because again, what the things that teachers can do different are the things that create different students. And it's hard for a lot of folks, especially in the beginning of the career, to envision doing things different because they just want to get the role first. Mm-hmm. And in and, and part, what I, I like to tell teachers, especially when you're, you're going into your first job, is to just be different. Yeah, It's okay. Yeah. It is okay to be different. We all come from a different place. We all have different understandings. Just be a little bit different. That's why students like taking different teachers because they're different. Yeah. Right. So um, I'm just I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm excited for where it's going to go. And I'm excited for the teachers that are going to engage with us in a way of showing the love and the joy of learning and not just the, the formulaic process of let me teach this this lesson. Let me teach this um, this section. But more so, let's go above and beyond. Mm-hmm. How does this hit home? How does it how does it touch your heritage? How does it touch your culture? How does your family understand this knowledge? Yeah. That's beautiful and joyful. So thank you so much, Dr. Logan, for uh, spending spending time with us today and for sharing not only the work that you're doing at the Burke, but the journey and at the ever-evolving journey. That's that, that's part of the work that you're, you're engaged in. So thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. And I, I hope I speak on behalf of the Burke and saying it's been a pleasure. It's definitely been a joy. Um, for all the listeners out there, if you do come to the Burke, please look us up. We are doing amazing things and we're going to continue to. And your voice, your help will help us get to the place where you want us to be. So please speak up, reach out. Our virtual programs go anywhere across the world. And we just, we're just excited to engage with as many folks as we can to share as many lessons and build as many relationships as we can as well. That's wonderful. And um, on the webpage, when the program comes out, all those resources, links, um, absolutely please reach out to Dr. Logan and his team. So thank you again. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.